Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we are going to read together verses 19 through 30. Acts chapter 11, we will read beginning in verse 19 through the remainder of the chapter, verse 30. And it is our ambition to cover this text together this morning. When you arrive there, because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand ready to hear the God who still speaks in his word. Luke wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit these words. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas. And Saul, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, once gave a series of eight sermons on how the Protestant Reformation should continue. This sermon series was offered in 1522 during the season of Lent. In one of these sermons, Luther declared what has become one of his most memorable statements regarding the power of the Word of God. Some of you will bear with Luther at a point in this quotation as Baptists. Here's what Luther said. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, 
or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no price or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. We have been making our way through an expositional series in this book, the book of Acts. And throughout this book, Luke demonstrates that the expansion of the early church was nothing more than the result of the proclamation of the word of God by the people of God, empowered by the spirit of God. That's church growth. The church is expanding in the first century on account of the efficacy and the power of the gospel spoken. Well, this morning, we arrive at Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, and the church continues to grow through the proclamation of the word of God by the people of God, empowered by the spirit of God. For example, in verse 19, just a quick glance, Verse 19, we learn that the disciples traveled up along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea through Phoenicia over to the island of Cyprus and all the way up north to Antioch. What were they doing? Speaking the word. And in verse 20, other believers from Cyprus and Cyrene, which was Libya, North Africa, they come to Antioch. What are they doing? They're preaching the Lord Jesus The church fundamentally did nothing. The word did everything. In this sense, there really is nothing new we're going to examine this Lord's Day morning. It's something that we've been examining since we started this expositional series in the book of Acts. The word of God spreading and God calling more and more people to himself through the proclamation of The word of God. On the other hand, in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, we do find the birth of a new local church. And this is an especially influential local church in the first few centuries of the church, the church of Antioch. This church will prove to be exemplary in many respects. In fact, it's it's going to stay center stage for, for some time. It's a gospel-centered church, to use common language today, and it will remain a gospel-centered church into the post-apostolic period. In fact, I was talking to a sister this morning. One of my heroes of the faith is a man named Ignatius who gave his life as a martyr in the early second century, and Ignatius was from, guess where? Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch. Well, from its inception, this church in Antioch is a church that is rooted in, and don't miss this, this is foundational to everything we're going to observe in the text this morning. From its inception, the church of Antioch is rooted in and centered on the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And what Luke does is he highlights certain characteristics that are exuded by this church in Antioch. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on identifying these characteristics together. So if you're taking notes, we are going to identify four characteristics. Four characteristics of this gospel-centered church known as the church in Antioch. Just by way of confession, I, I started writing the sermon as consisting of three characteristics. And I did realize I had a bit of a bias 
I think it's four characteristics after all. And so the text one, you can't preach on the power of the word when you're willing to compromise the word to fit an outline, right? So the text one, jokes aside, of course, and there are indeed, I think, four characteristics of the church in Antioch in the text. And these four characteristics, church family, are informative for us as a local church. So what we're doing is we're identifying these four characteristics and we're examining them and we're seeking by the power of the Spirit of God among us, through us, and in us to live according to these four characteristics. Now next Lord's Day, just a bit of a roadmap for us over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be back in this text, if the Lord permits. We'll come back to this same text And instead of talking about this exemplary church, the church in Antioch, we're going to talk about an exemplary Christian named Barnabas. So this week, if you like, if you keep kind of these running notes throughout the sermon series, this week, a gospel-centered church. Next week, a gospel-centered Christian. And it'll be the same text, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. If you are new to First Baptist Powell, each week during the sermon, we also add a couple of items for our younger worshipers, our children in the room, and you can jot these down. We encourage you to participate in conversation with your younger worshiper during the sermon if it serves them to walk alongside of us in the biblical text. So younger worshipers, there are a couple of things I want you to look for as we're moving through this text. First of all, I want you to notice that there are two groups of people. Two groups of people to whom these early Christians are preaching God's word. I'll give you a hint. One group is in verse 19 and another group is in verse 20. Two groups of people who are these two groups of people to whom these early Christians are going and they're sharing the gospel. Again, parents, grandparents, guardians, you can help your younger worshiper through these. The second thing I want you to look for, younger worshipers, is this. What did the church in Antioch do? What did the church in Antioch do when they found out that the church in Judea would be without food? So what did the church in Antioch do when they were told that something was going to happen soon. A prophet stands up. His name is Agabus. He stands up and he says, there's going to be a famine. There's going to be a lack of food. What did the church in Antioch do for the church in Judea? And you'll notice that as we move through this text. Well, now let's Let's turn to identifying our four characteristics of the church in Antioch. First, the first characteristic, notice what I would call gospel-centered diversity. Gospel-centered diversity. Look again with me at verses 19 through 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. Again, don't miss that. What are they doing? They're speaking the word to no one except Jews. Younger worshipers, there's a group. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, 
preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now Luke recalls for us in this text a particular persecution that began back in Acts chapter 7 with a man named Stephen. If you've been with us, you perhaps will remember Stephen. He was one of the first deacons appointed in Acts chapter 6. It's no accident actually, I don't think, that he was a Hellenistic Jew who had become a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, immediately after Stephen is stoned, he's martyred for his proclamation of the word of God. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Luke informed us that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the result of this persecution against the church in Jerusalem that arose as a result of Stephen's bold proclamation was many believers were scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. In fact, Luke tells us in chapter 8 verse 1 that many believers were scattered away from Jerusalem except the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. The believers continued to share Christ with others amid persecution. And we'll come full circle to that, I think, in just a moment. So they're continuing to preach Christ amid persecution. However, this persecution did cause many to scatter, as I mentioned a moment ago. And in our text, believers travel north to Phoenicia, excuse me, all along the coast, by the way, if you've got an atlas, perhaps a Bible atlas at home or in the back of your, in the back of your Bibles, you'll, you'll see this. They're traveling north along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so they pass through Phoenicia. Then they go over to the island of Cyprus, which is located right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And they go all the way up the coast to Antioch, just northwest of of modern Syria. It's a part of Turkey today. And as the church spreads, Luke demonstrates that the gospel was preached to both Jews and Gentiles. Now remember this, what what Luke is doing is he's unfolding the proclamation of the gospel and the expansion of the church and he's showing how this small Jewish believing community in Jesus Christ is now expanding to include Gentiles. And so he's done this throughout the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch came to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, as later tradition tells us, Irenaeus is the one who tells us this in the second century, the Ethiopian eunuch goes back to Ethiopia as a missionary proclaiming the same gospel he had come to prize as he was reading Isaiah 53. And Philip declared that gospel to him. So the Ethiopian eunuch came to know the Lord. Cornelius and his household came to know the Lord. Those relatives and close friends who had gathered in Acts chapter 10 to hear Peter's message, they came to know and trust Jesus the Christ. And what was so significant about this is they came to know and trust Jesus without becoming Jews. Moreover, they weren't instructed to become Jews. Why? Because they had already received the Holy Spirit. God bore testimony. No, no. I'm receiving them as they are. They don't have to become something before I embrace them. No, no, it's my embrace that transforms. And so that's happening in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. And now beyond the household of Cornelius, Luke is showing us that the gospel continues to spread to both Jews 
and Greeks. By the way, verse 20, I don't know what your translation reads. The ESV, if you're holding the English Standard Version, which is also happens to be the, the pew Bible that we have in front of you if you're using one of those pew Bibles. The ESV opts for the translation in verse 20 that the word of Christ was declared to the Hellenists. The Hellenists. And that's probably how I would translate the word. Uh, the problem is, Hellenist is a broad term, a broad epithet, and it can mean a number of things. It means just uh, generally, generically, Greek speaker. It can be used to refer to Greek-speaking Jews. It can be used to refer to Greek-speaking Jews who become Christians. It can also be used to just refer to Greeks. And here I think it's used to refer to Greeks or Gentiles. So this is just another way of referring to someone who is not a Jew. And so the gospel spreads to the Jews. The gospel spreads to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And this becomes one of the distinguishing marks of the church in Antioch. This was the first church in which believing Jews and believing Gentiles worshipped together. It epitomizes the body of Christ. And so it's characterized by gospel-centered diversity. Now, how was it that this church was able to be so diverse on this dividing issue in the first century? It's really quite simple. They were centered on the message of Jesus Christ. Christ was the center of their identity. He was their shared center. This is not, by the way, this is not to suggest a kind of uniformity in the church of Antioch. It doesn't mean that the members of the church of Antioch all dress the same. It doesn't mean all the members of the church of Antioch all looked the same. Or listened to the same music. Or made the same educational decisions for their children. It doesn't even mean, this is a bit anachronistic, okay? Don't throw anything at me. I love you. And my pulpit is small and I can't hide behind it. It doesn't even mean they all voted the same. It's okay to have perspectives that are informed by the word of God on all of these issues. And we should. What it means is that so much of the diversity that was present and even, let's be frank, the animosity that was present between Jews and Gentiles who weren't becoming Jews. All of that animosity, all of that diversity was eclipsed by the power and the treasure and the centrality of the gospel. Amen. That's the church. And that's the kind of unity this world simply cannot understand. Now, glance down at the conclusion of verse 26. Luke tells us that in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? 
Christians and, and scholars talk about this. Was this initially an antagonistic or pejorative title? Was it negative, assigned to believers by unbelievers? And perhaps this is the case. After all, it does say the believers were called passive. It's perhaps the case. But very soon hereafter, believers will embrace the title. They will embrace the title as we have until the present, why? It communicates what we fundamentally have in common. In fact, I'm going to get too far off this morning. I can already tell. I just have that kind of a mind this morning. Don't always have it. just happens to be here. You knew you were in trouble when I started back there this morning. You were in for quite a ride. And I was too. Early church documents, uh, one in particular is known as the Epistle of Diognetus. You don't have to remember that. Unless you want a great reward in heaven, then you can remember that, okay? (laughs) That was a joke. To be clear to everyone in the room, just a joke. The Epistle of Diognetus, second century document, describes Christians as a third race. A third race. Not Jew. Not Gentile. Christian. Isn't that rich? In other words, it becomes our fundamental identity. It's who we are before we are anything else. We are Christ's followers. I was even sharing with my daughter yesterday. I had a conversation with someone um, last couple of days. I don't, I don't frequently get to have a conversation with someone who doesn't know I'm a pastor. But I love having conversations with people who don't know I'm a pastor. And uh, so, just, you know, anyway, it's just a unique opportunity for me. When someone finds out you're a pastor, the conversation immediately changes. I'm amazed at how quickly someone becomes a Christian. So the last couple of days I had a conversation with someone who didn't know I was a pastor and I was talking to my daughter about this and I told her, I said, you know, sweetheart, I, I enjoy that. And, you know, she was asking about it. I think I was even talking to other family members in our home. And I said, I think, I think primarily it's because I, sometimes I just fundamentally don't want to be a pastor. I want to be a Christian. It's more fundamental to who I am. I'm a pastor for a season. I'm a Christian forever. And I look forward to the day when we will all bow before the chief pastor, Jesus the Christ. Now there's something else I want to note before we move on to identify our second characteristic. We've spent more time on the first characteristic than I anticipated. One of the mercies God granted to the early church was the mercy of persecution. Persecution provides a a host of challenges, okay? It does. But it also tends to bind the church together. It sifts the church. It purifies the church. And it binds the members of the church together. When Jewish believers are being threatened alongside of Gentile believers on account of their shared faith in Christ, this shared experience and the shared suffering unites them. 
I don't know, church family, what the Lord has in store for the church in America. I'm no prophet, nor the son of a prophet. And as Dr. Ware said when he was in town, I do work for a nonprofit, I suppose. (laughs) I don't know what the Lord has in store for the church in America, but I do suspect that he intends to use the instrument of persecution for the good of the church, for the purity of the church, and for the unity of the church. And then one more brief caveat, okay? I do a couple of caveats I wanted to add that grow out of this text as we talk about these concepts. The kind of diversity that I'm talking about is not something that is often described under the title diversity. There is an unhealthy and even damning diversity that compromises the historical and biblical doctrines of Christianity. That is not Christian diversity. And this diversity is often offered in the name of love and unity and humility when in fact it is none of these things. The kind of diversity that I am proposing on account of the text is a diversity, don't miss this, not that compromises the historical and biblical doctrines. This is a diversity that is rooted in and centered on these historical and biblical doctrines. It is a diversity that is only possible with the parameters of doctrinal unity. That's important to recognize here, okay? So just because of our cultural climate, I do feel the need to mention that. That is a sermon for another time. Second, let's keep moving together. Second, observe Antioch's, in addition to their gospel-centered diversity, observe second, their gospel-centered association, we'll call it. Gospel-centered association. Look with me at verse 22. The report of this, that is the spread of the gospel, and more and more Gentile believers are coming into the church of Antioch. So now you have this church that's well known, a church comprised of believing Jew, believing Gentile, worshiping together the Lord Jesus Christ. This report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. What is going on in Antioch? And so they sent Barnabas. Now I mentioned this, we're going to cover... Barnabas' ministry in greater detail next week. However, I want you to note that there is an organic connection between the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem. There's an association, a connection. It's even quite intimate. Now, we could say, of course, the apostles exist in the church in Jerusalem. And so there's some degree of oversight here that can't be transplanted, I would submit to you, into the present. But there is this organic association and connection between these two churches that are separated by many, many miles. In fact, this connection will manifest itself not simply in Jerusalem sending Barnabas to the church in Antioch and Barnabas then teaching and instructing for an entire year alongside of Paul, as we're going to see in the church of Antioch, But it will be reciprocated by the church in Antioch as the church in Antioch decides to sacrificially raise funds to support the church in Judea, which includes the church in Jerusalem. I wanted to point this out because as believers within the Baptist or you could even say broader congregational stream of Christianity, we believe that Christ has granted authority to each local church. 
And we believe that he's granted authority to each local church such that each church exercises properly that authority by appointing its own leaders, administering its own discipline, and even organizing itself according to its own interpretation and application of the word of God. And so we believe that as, as Baptists, we believe it broadly as those within the congregational stream. On the other hand, this does not mean that we are the only faithful local church. Moreover, we recognize that each local church is an expression of a universal reality. Now, there are some Baptists that don't believe that. We love them. They're wrong. Each local church is an expression Properly giving the epithet church, right? Throughout the New Testament, most of the times the word church is used, it's used to describe a local church like this. First Baptist Powell is a church. But there are times, I think in Matthew's gospel and also throughout the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians where the word church is broader than this. It's universal in scope. And so each local church is an expression of this universal reality called the body of Christ. Or we could say the church. The worldwide church. So as a result, what do we do? We value the perspective and cooperation of other faithful local churches. And we aim for that connection to be organic. We certainly aim for that connection to be rooted in, centered on the historical, biblical doctrines of Christianity for the proclamation of the gospel and the growth of the body of Christ. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why we are a part of a local association called Knox County Association of Baptists. We cooperate and associate with other churches. Moreover, we even go beyond the boundaries of the Baptist stream, and we're a part of a network called the Knox County Church Network. There are Baptists in that network. There are others who are not Baptists in that network. In fact, in fact, one of the, one of the pastors, the, the one who actually started Knox County Church Network, sent me an email the other day, and, and pastors, the other pastors on staff and I were talking about this, and he invited me to come and bring the word of God to their congregation in November. This is a church we consider to be a gospel-centered church. We don't agree with them on everything, but they are a part and an expression of a universal reality called the body of Christ. They are a valid local church, and we want to cooperate with them and associate with them for the spread of the gospel. And we see that in the book of Acts. And so the church in Antioch didn't merely exude gospel-centered diversity, they demonstrated gospel-centered association with other churches. Third, third characteristic. In addition to gospel-centered diversity and gospel-centered association, we find gospel-centered growth. Now, I'm allergic to that word, but I chose to use it, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, okay? And I shouldn't be allergic to it. I recognize that. Gospel-centered growth. This characteristic of growing, multiplying, reproducing, 
blossoms through the church in Antioch in chapter 13. We're not there this morning. We're going to get there. But the church in Antioch is the church that commissions Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. Can't wait to get to that text. However, gospel-centered growth happens in our text as well. As we just observed, when the news about Antioch reached the church in Jerusalem, what did the Jerusalem church do? They sent Barnabas. Barnabas goes to Antioch to check on the work in Antioch, and he comes and he exhorts the believers there. And at the conclusion of verse 24, so look at the text with me. The conclusion of verse 24, we find descriptions like this in the text. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And by the way, to be added to the body of Christ is to be added to the Lord. Don't miss that. To be added to the Lord is to be added to the Lord's body, the church. No maverick Christianity in the book of Acts but a Christianity that finds its expression in the local church as an expression of the universal church. And so here, verse 25, a great many people were added to the Lord. This church is growing. The gospel is spreading. Now, the kind of growth described in this text and throughout Acts is not a rearranging of the body of Christ from one church to another. I'll never forget one of my professors. Perhaps I shouldn't mention his name. He'll forgive me. Don't tell him. (laughs) Michael Spiegel. He's at Dallas Theological Seminary. Tremendous man. He's a chair of theology. Now he wasn't then. Michael Spiegel, in one of the class lectures, made the comment that so often church growth is confused by a larger church just offering a more exciting version and gobbling up smaller churches. And then he went on to say that statistically, perhaps it's not church growth at all. Perhaps the church is shrinking as a whole. But one church boasts as if it's growing. And that's a failure, I think, to exude that other characteristic gospel-centered association. So the kind of growth that we see in the text is not this. Now, there, there are, by the way, there are good reasons to leave one church and go to another, okay? And, and we live in a different time, a different era, a different place. Valid reasons given certain circumstances to do this, but the kind of growth we find throughout Acts and in Antioch is the growth that comes about when God's people are proclaiming God's word empowered by God's spirit. That's the growth. It's really quite simple. Believers hearing the word of God, going and proclaiming the word of God, and some people, by God's effectual grace through the spirit drawing them, they come into the body of Christ. That's church growth in the book of Acts. Now, as I mentioned, we do live in a different time. This is East Tennessee. There are so many churches, a plethora of local churches. Nevertheless, it it does seem to me that it ought to be our goal as a local congregation to grow 
and that growth be less about poaching members from other churches. And more about preaching Christ where Christ is unknown. Preaching Christ among people who do not yet call Christ Lord and Master. In fact, in fact, if we do that well and we're working alongside of and in association with other faithful gospel-centered churches and we're encouraging their members to stay where they are, and to serve in those local churches and to go out and preach Christ. Not only are we growing, other churches will grow. The body of Christ will grow. That's gospel-centered growth, brothers and sisters. Additionally, notice that the church in Antioch did not grow on account of compromising the gospel. They didn't grow by changing the message, but they grew on account of a commitment to the truth of the gospel. So if we are to grow church family, let it be by the proclamation of the truth about Christ to those who do not yet know the Lord. Fundamentally and primarily, again, hear me caveat this and say, there are difficult circumstances to consider. And I know this is simplistic and that's one of the challenges of preaching a sermon before hundreds of people. Nevertheless, may it be that the center of our growth is preaching Christ for Christ is Unknown. So what is the message? I mean, what do we proclaim to a watching world? What did the church in Antioch proclaim to a world in desperate need of hearing this gospel? They proclaimed the same message we proclaimed, that while we were sinners, God sent his son, who became truly human, while remaining truly God who lived a life that we could not live in perfect submission and obedience to the Father, who suffered and bore our sins on the cross, dying a death that we deserved, who was buried and on the third day was raised in glorious power from the dead, who, was, who appeared to many and then 40 days later ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father with the promise that he's given to us, someday I'm coming back to make all things new. That's the message we proclaim. That's the message with which we go to the world calling on all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, friends, if you've not trusted in Christ, if you've not come to recognize that you have placed, like the rest of us, by the way, everyone else in this room, that you've placed your trust and your hope and your peace and your comfort and your fulfillment and your status in the wrong object. And the Bible calls that sin, rebellion, the refusal to live in the way God intends for us to live. If you've not recognized that about yourself and recognize that you can't put yourself back together again, but it must be something God does for you and he's done so through Christ Jesus and he offers you this morning forgiveness of sins 
and cleansing and righteousness in Christ received through faith. I implore you this morning, trust in Christ. Don't leave this place without embracing him as Lord and master over your life. And if you'd like to talk to someone else about this, you can stay afterward. And as the service ends here in just a little while, you can exit one of these double doors in the back and take a left. And before you leave this building, there's a room out there called Crossroads. And there will be an elder in that room who would love to come alongside of you and visit with you about what it means to trust in and serve Jesus Christ. Moreover, if you know the Lord, if you have surrendered to Jesus Christ, if you've embraced the message of the gospel and the word that was spreading through the church in Antioch, go and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel to your children. This week, today, sit down with them and share the gospel, parents. There's nothing more important in all of life for you to teach your children than the message of life in Christ. Children, you know, you can proclaim the gospel to your parents. Adult children, you can proclaim the gospel to your parents. After all, the gospel is not merely for the unbeliever, but it is the source of nourishment for the believer as well and an instrument for great encouragement. Go preach the gospel to your coworkers. Go preach the gospel to your friends. Go preach the gospel to your professors as you're in college. Go preach Christ and him crucified and watch God do what he promises to do. Call his people to himself. Win his people. Proclaim his word by the power of his spirit. That's what Antioch did. Fourth and finally, Observe with me Antioch's gospel-centered generosity. Gospel-centered generosity. Look with me at verses 27 through 30, if you would. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So this is probably late 40s. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, verse 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Well, before we wrap up, we are briefly introduced to a prophet named Agabus. Agabus, by the way, will reappear in Acts chapter 21 and we'll address what he says there. But here, Agabus tells about a coming famine. And so many people are going to be without food. In fact, we're told that this famine would come upon all the world. And I do think uh, there's some discussion among commentators. I think this is a way of referring to all the known world, the Mediterranean world. And so this gospel-centered church in Antioch responds. How do they respond? By hoarding resources? Think about it for just a moment. It would have been very easy for the church in Antioch to keep everything they had, for believers to keep everything they had, to think, you know what? If a famine is coming, I'm going to hold on to it. Moreover, I want my children and their children and their children to have what I had or better. Valid responses, I think. But it's not what Luke 
describes. Rather, this gospel-centered church responds by putting resources aside to help provide for their brothers and sisters in Judea. And presumably, specifically, in Jerusalem. Church family, generosity with other believers in Jesus Christ and even other churches is a symptom of the centrality of the gospel. When the gospel is central for us, it cultivates sacrificial generosity. Now we've already seen in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 where believers are selling what they possessed and they're sharing it with one another in need that was happening in and around Jerusalem. But here, the church in Antioch models this sacrificial generosity. And don't miss this. Do not miss what God is doing. The gospel spreads to Jew and Gentile. The Jerusalem church, or broadly the church in Judea, is Jewish. A famine is coming and this Largely Gentile church. And this Gentile church who has benefited from the teaching of Barnabas sent by the church in Jerusalem decides to share what they have with the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Why? Because they're family. It's that simple. When the gospel is central, we view other followers in Jesus Christ or followers of Jesus Christ as family members. And so it is here in the church of Antioch. The gospel tends to loosen our grip on our bank accounts. The gospel tends to loosen our grip on the various other temporary and perishable treasures we acquire in this life. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that is, though he existed in the form of God in heavenly glory, see, to use the language of Paul in Philippians 2. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became what? Poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ abandoned the wealth of heaven for the poverty of earth. Why? To replace our poverty with his wealth. And this is why. This is why the church in Antioch gave generously to the church in Jerusalem. And this is what motivates Christians today to give generously to others who are in need. Well, this week, this week we have looked together at the church in Antioch as exemplary brothers and sisters, as a gospel centered church. The gospel drove the diversity in Antioch. The gospel shaped Antioch's association with other churches, in particular the church in Jerusalem. The gospel caused the growth experienced in Antioch. And finally, the gospel cultivated generosity among the members of the church in Antioch. Next week, if the Lord permits, we will turn our attention to a particular Christian named Barnabas, whom the Spirit offers to us as a model for the gospel-centered life. Would you pray with me, please? 
Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to spend time in your word in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, where we have observed, on account of the work of your grace, a gospel-centered church in this church known as the church in Antioch. And we pray that the diversity and the association and the growth and the generosity that this church modeled 2,000 years ago would be found in our midst at First Baptist Church in Powell, Tennessee. Do this, Father, because it must be your work by the Spirit, not ours. And do this so that we might have opportunity to give you glory, praise, and honor on account of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.